Hello, this is Danny Fontaine, aka The Pitch Guy, and it's so lovely to have you here. This is Pitch Masters, a podcast series featuring interviews with the leaders of the advertising, sales, and marketing industries to find out how they win business. This week's episode features one of my heroes, Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman of Ogilvy and Behavioural Science Guru. Rory Sutherland, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. As you know, and uh, anyone who knows me knows, you are a big influence on my work and on uh, my career over the last kind of 15 years. So it's a real pleasure to have you on here. But for those people who don't know who Rory Sutherland is, please give yourself a quick introduction. Um, I'm the founder of the Behavioural Science Practice at Ogilvy, having been a copywriter and an advertising creative at Ogilvy for about 30 years. And um, I'm absolutely convinced that a study of decision science, behavioural science, social psychology uh, can be of significant importance uh, in improving the quality of human life and human experience. Um, and marketing. Uh, you know, I'm not totally uncommercial in that. Uh, I'm also uh, occasional columnist, well, regular columnist for The Spectator, occasional columnist for Wired, The Sunday Telegraph, usually on kind of behavioural science matters. So I assume that when you joined Ogilvy, there was no behavioural science unit. So how did that come about? What, what was the need that you saw that you felt like this was something you wanted to set up and, and move forwards with? Well, um, what's very strange is that um, I think it's actually a very important point to make here, which is that the study of how humans perceive information and then use that information to make decisions, you would think is central to advertising, okay? But strangely, in advertising, in public policy, in government, uh, in business, um, we have always, I think... uh, vastly underplayed the importance of perception, psychology, um, and uh, human cognition uh, in terms of how tweaking context, for example, or tweaking the choice architecture can have a monumental effect on the decisions people end up making. And I think the reason for that is simple, which is I think our own brains tell lies to us about how we decide. And there are other people, you know, there's a wonderful anthropologist called Dan Sperber, a French anthropologist, who will explain this better than me. What tends to happen, I think, is we make decisions very largely emotionally, uh, and then we post-rationalise them. But our brain, for some reason, wants us to believe that our post-rationalisation is the true explanation for why we made that decision. I bought the car because it was economical, because it had, uh, you know, a fantastic boot capacity. Yes, that probably wasn't irrelevant to your decision, but it's highly unlikely that was really the deciding factor. Or that an uglier car that had a worse brand image with the same boot carrying capacity would have actually attracted you in quite the same way. And yet I think what happens is that, for whatever reason, there's an argument uh, that's made, which is called the argumentation hypothesis, which is that um, the human faculty of reason evolved not to help us make decisions. We have emotions for that. 
And let's face it, all other animals, you know, all other living things survive perfectly well without needing a faculty of reason. OK, they've evolved sufficient instincts to survive and thrive and reproduce uh, without needing a faculty of reason. And the theory is that the faculty of reason evolved as an argumentative function in order to defend our decisions or to argue a point or to evaluate the arguments of others. It didn't evolve, in other words, we didn't evolve a sense of reason um, with the aim of actually making better decisions thereby. We evolved the faculty of reason by being able to explain our decisions better. And it may be that in evolutionary terms, it's simply better that we believe our post-rationalizations. Another great book on this topic, uh, Robert Trivers has uh, written a, a book on deceit and self-deception. And he argues that in many cases in evolution, he's an absolute god in the uh, evolutionary sciences, in many cases in evolution, it is in our interest to, in a sense, delude ourselves. Because if you wish to deceive others, it's first necessary to deceive yourself, to prevent yourself giving off particular um, clues uh, to predators or to rivals or anybody else, or, or indeed romantic um, uh, targets of your romantic affection. It actually pays for us to believe our own bullshit in a sense. And I think that's true. So in a weird way, we can always come up with an explanation for why we did something. Whether that explanation is both complete and accurate is a completely different matter. And so, but as a result of this, I think, self-delusion, we study decision-making far too little. And I think, I think it's very interesting, your particular topic is around pitching, which is a very, very specialised form of decision-making. But for example, okay, I would say that every single pitch contains an element of a lie. Okay. And what I, what I would say is the people pitching their idea and the person who indeed wrote the brief for the pitch claims to believe and does believe at some level that what they're looking for is the best possible solution. Okay. I would argue that instinctively in their instincts and therefore in their emotions, a very large part of this decision is actually made unconsciously by the fear of what's the worst that can happen. In other words, we're presenting to a client, we, we think they're thinking, and to some extent they think they're thinking, how good is this presentation? In other words, they're looking at it through an opportunistic lens. I would argue that a large part of their unconscious is going... How can I present this to my boss? If I present this to my boss, will he think I'm stupid? Okay. You know, we are betting five million pounds on an animated talking meerkat. How the hell do I explain that to my finance director? In other words, there are fears and a different kind of calibration of decision. I is, you know, is this career destroying for me? How will my career, you know, and my general standing and status be affected by this work? and by appointing agency A over agency B. And I would argue that at the unconscious level, that's playing a much greater part than any in the, anybody in the room realises or acknowledges. So it's, if you like, the pitch equivalent of no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. So, so, so that's incredibly interesting. So w one question I've got specifically on that then is... If we are using emotion in a pitch to convince our audience or at least their subconscious mind that they should go with us and allow them to rationalise it afterwards, 
if they then have to go to their boss and say, we want to choose company X, we want to choose IBM, and the boss says, well, why do you want to do that? And they give their rational argument because they cannot recreate that emotion that we perhaps uh, conveyed in our pitch. Is that a problem, do you think? Uh, one thing I think is an opportunity, by the way, is I think one one thing that might help is to actually film a pitch and give the person who you pitch to the footage afterwards for them to edit it down or to show it to other people. Um, uh, that you know, you know, because that removes from them the burden of how do I now translate this or explain this, uh, you know, in an elevator pitch to somebody else. Uh, by the way, by the way, we—I mean—that did happen very occasionally for very big pitches to huge organisations in the nineteen eighties and nineties. There's a very famous BT pitch from Abbott Mead Vickers, which I think still exists on film. Why it didn't become more widespread, I don't quite know. It seems an obvious thing to do. Um, I would argue, perhaps, that our pitches should ultimately be now films. Now, obviously, we'll be present live, but actually, since with filmmaking, graphics, etc., you know, data visualisation, we can put a much better case together than we necessarily can, um, you know, by uh, just using, you know, fairly standard keynote or PowerPoint. I think there's an interesting case, from which I would advance, for actually saying maybe the first 15 minutes of a pitch should be a film. Mm. And, and it's, it's a technique that I've used before in terms of, you know, after a workshop or a pitch, actually sending the client a, an edited version also allows us to do mm. things like add a soundtrack and, and start to work on other emotional facets within our audience's minds as well, appealing to those other senses. Yeah, and actually, uh, uh, by the way, I mean, I think writing what you might call the um, the one paragraph, the equivalent of the blurb on the back of a hardback book. In other words, condensing your pitch thinking. There is a problem with pitching, by the way, which I, I, I'll, I'll just discuss with you. And it, it, it's, it's something that advertising agencies get both very right, but which is also unfortunate, which is... The idea that the pitch has to be this narrative, which is dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum, uh, describe problem, okay? Then, ta-da, which is, you know, wonderful insight. Then, dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum, how, how the insight helps contribute to the solution of the problem, okay? Now, for advertising on TV, that was probably not a totally inappropriate thing to do. OK, um, because you were basically having a one size fits all message which appeared uh, in a whole series of uh, mass media, you know, you know, more or less. OK, I would argue that it does also create the slightly unfortunate urge among agencies to pretend that every every major problem has a has a single ta-da solution. And I think that structure of narrative in pitches, the kind of narrative arc, is not, not totally dissimilar to a kind of Hollywood narrative arc, sometimes can be unfortunate. A lot of people in advertising say one of the things, and this is one of the reasons I started a behavioural science practice, so do you see what I'm doing here? I'm looping back, Ooh, very nice, looping back to the very beginning. One of the reasons I created a behavioural science practice is that in pitches you would often have this final slide which was other ideas and suggestions, okay? And 
in quite a few cases, and I wasn't alone in this, quite a few people, people would say, actually, in business terms, three of those bullet points on your final kind of giveaway epilogue slide might be actually more significant economically and might be more interesting than the main Tadar point we made earlier on. And so, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I, I, I partly found it a behavioural science practice is I think that we need to get into the business of general inquiry as to human behaviour, motivation and perception. And that doesn't necessarily throw up a single answer in that way. And so quite often the way we'd pitch in behavioural science might be a workshop, for example, you know, something more collaborative where we acknowledge that there are five or ten different things you can do. And there are, by the way, you know, in any case where you bring a behavioural science lens to bear upon a business problem, it will generally throw up more than one solution. And unlike advertising, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Yeah, no, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. So just going back to the... Uh, the way our brains work for a second. So one of the things I, I talk about uh, at work a lot is, is just what you've said. We need to elicit emotion first so that the brain is receptive to receiving the information which then they can use to rationalise that emotional feeling. Is that something that you do agree with, that simple formula? Yeah. <laughs> Fundamentally, if you don't emotionally land it, you don't land it. And there's a wonderful phrase which I always copy, which is from Kumal Galhotra, who's the head of Ford North America. Very interesting guy, of course, because he grew up in India where owning a car at all at, in his youth was a kind of status marker. You know, there were two people on his street who owned cars, I think. And now he's, you know, running Ford North America. But his wonderful phrase is that car making is 100,000 rational decisions in search of one emotional decision. You know, you have to do all the engineering and the floor pan and the powertrain and the, you know, and the suspension and the tyres and everything else. And that's all hardcore rational engineering. But fundamentally, if people don't want to buy the car because they don't like the look of it or they don't like the brand, um, there's nothing, you know, you've lost. All of that other work has gone to waste. And I think... I think there's a truth there, which is you can you can be right and you can win arguments, but if you don't land it emotionally, uh, you've fundamentally lost. And it's complicated because there are all these factors. There's likability, for example. Basic likability is just hugely important. Um, probably um, there's another factor which I think gets overlooked, and this was a great bit of pitch advice, which is that clients aren't only thinking, what do I think of them? They're also thinking, what do, I, what do they think mm. of me? And uh, that, that was, uh, I think, the guy who was the head of Starbucks in the UK, Mark Fox, who said, it isn't just that people think, you know, what, we shouldn't just ask the question, what do people think of brands? There's the question, what do brands think of them? And that's a very good point uh, in terms of that kind of emotional question. But the ability fundamentally to um, uh, essentially, I suppose, in a, in a weird way, the kind of the lizard brain does still have power of veto. If something doesn't feel right, you probably won't do it. And so uh, it's completely wrong, you know, to attempt to effectively. David Ogilvy always said you can't bore someone into buying your product. You know, there's an element of seduction required and you can't really 
I mean, I mean, if you think about it, I argued him or her into bed is, is about the worst sentence you can ever utter. You're okay. Um, and it, that is, it is an interesting one, that, because now, obviously, one of the most interesting things which always fascinates me is that none of this features in what is usually given to our clients, which is a procurement-issued balance scorecard. Now, if you, to be honest, if you ask anybody, particularly after a few drinks, who's been asked to go through that exercise, okay, uh, they'll admit after a few drinks that what they did is they decided which agency they wanted to win and then yeah. they backfilled the numbers yeah. to get the result they wanted. Okay, And the reason for that, I think, is that although logically, and people like Darwin and Benjamin Franklin kind of thought this way or thought this was an aid to decision making, although logically we should sort of make decisions additively in that way, the obvious truth is that the human brain does not. Okay, it isn't simply an additive function. For instance, okay, let's say you had chemistry, 10 points. Okay, and that's only 10 percent of the overall scorecard. Yet the fact remains that, OK, if you hate these people, everything yeah. else scores zero anyway, because you're never going to produce a brilliant strategy with people you can't stand working with. And so it's ludicrous to use an additive function because, of course, the things can't be isolated in that way. In some ways, it's a multiplicative function, because if you score zero on any of those factors, it doesn't matter, you know, if your creative's a piece of shit, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is, let's be honest, because it's still yeah. ultimately a shit ad. You know, ultimately, I mean, the, the thing I always look at, which fascinates me, considering how much money is spent as a result of it, one of the things that always fascinates me in the decision sciences is how people buy houses or choose a place to live. And at some, first of all, if you talk to estate agents, they'll say one interesting facet is that if you go through the buying process with a prospective buyer, they will never end up buying the kind of house they stipulated to begin with. So that the process is to some extent recursive and iterative. In other words, we see what's out there and use comparison to reshape our preferences in accord with what's available. So, you know, people will say, no, I definitely want a detached house, and they end up buying a bloody penthouse with a view of the river, because suddenly they discover that Riverside View trumped small back garden, okay? And ultimately, when you buy a house, if it doesn't clinch it for you emotionally, you can't buy it, okay? Now, that's a major purchase. If there's one purchase, other than, say, marriage or whatever, if there's one decision we make in life that should that should be highly rationalised and where we should bring in our procurement friends with their balanced scorecard, it's buying property. And yet we accept the fact that in buying property, there's this unquantifiable X, the absence of which basically means the deal's off. We talk a little bit conceptually now about different things we could buy and the different things involved and, and, and the time difference that some of these sales might take. When we're in a pitch... We've got, say, 90 minutes to convince an audience that our solution, our service, our product is better than all of our competition. And then we've also got things like design, wow factor, communications. Oh, and that's one, that, that's one, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it, of course, which the ad industry isn't very good at, is saying, if you don't do this, things will be bad. Okay. So we, we automatically, we auto, now I, I spoke to someone who, although, who worked in IT, 
And by a sort of fluke, they ended up sitting through a series of advertising pitches. I can't remember why they were brought in. And they said that in many respects, they, they were in awe of the advertising industry for its kind of slickness, its theatricality, its you know uh, uh, a quality of presentation style, the quality of the graphics used, the beautiful uh, you know uh, creation of the slides. But they said, you make this mistake, which we never make in IT, which is you sell on the basis of if you do this, things will be good. We never do that, they said in IT. Everything we sell is on the basis of if you don't do this, you will get shafted. Lots of my colleagues uh, throughout different jobs have said, the thing is, we can't call their baby ugly. We're, they're reticent to say anything about the fear, uncertainty and doubt that could come about. Is that something that we just need to say? Well, uh, what? Well, funnily enough, I had an interesting instance of exactly this. And one of the great things in a behavioural science is I think you can sometimes use slightly fancy language mm. to be rude politely, OK? Which is if you say, you know, you if you say your product's shit, OK, that's slightly problematic. But if you can actually put that in behavioural language, you can slightly frame it so that it isn't a criticism. In the same way, I had a very the case I had recently where they said we can't tell them the fundamental pro the product is fundamentally flawed, and I said, but behaviorally the product is fundamentally flawed. Okay, this is the idea, by the way, that you should scan groceries not with a handheld device that fits in the trolley, but you should scan groceries with your own mobile phone. So, so the idea is you can use your phone as a barcode reader so that rather than having to have a barcode reader. Now, first of all, you're much more worried about dropping your phone, which is your own, rather than the store's barcode reader. The store's barcode reader probably costs about 25 quid or something. I don't know what they cost. Um, whereas your phone is several hundred quid. But it's, it's a process that is more or less impossible unless you had three hands. An octopus would be able to manage it fairly well. A human, not that well. And my argument is part of the reason I got into behavioural science is to say, actually, sometimes, OK, we have to go to the root of the problem rather than dealing with the surface of the problem. And so, uh, you know, one of the arguments, I'm, and there's another problem, by the way, which is typically the barcode you need to scan, which is your Nectar or your My Waitrose card barcode is on your mobile phone to begin with and it's very difficult to scan something yeah. from your mobile phone that's on your mobile phone okay but 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 quite often one of the problems i think with advertising is that you were very constrained in terms of the scale and location in which the problem had to be solved you know it had to be one of perception and the solution had to be one of effectively stimulus and quite often if the problem was somewhere else the advertising agency was highly incentivized to pretend that there was no problem somewhere else and that with the miracle of advertising, regardless of the fact that, let's say, the choice architecture of the product or the pricing or the comparative set or the choice, you know, whatever, was fundamentally flawed, okay, you had to pretend that it was an advertising problem. And my point is, quite often it isn't, okay? You know, there are lots and lots of things which have succeeded or failed um, with and without advertising, where the problem or the solution didn't necessarily lie there, or rather, this is not to this is absolutely not to dismiss advertising. If you get everything right else right, advertising will probably work pretty pretty well. 
But if there's something fundamentally flawed with your basic premise, then all the advertising in the world isn't going to solve the problem. If that's the case, do you go in there and you say, you know what, we've we've changed our minds. We're not going to pitch for the advertising work because we found a fundamental problem and a, and a different way to solve it using behavioral science. There, there is a problem if you do that, by the way, which is if you are in a procurement run pitch, they will say, we want to compare apples with apples. If you've come up with a fundamentally different solution, even if it is less expensive, we cannot now compare you on price like for like with the other agencies pitching. So if you continue with this imaginative line of inquiry, we will kick you off the pitch. All we want to know is how much it costs to produce 200 advertisements. Okay, now that is complete bullshit where you define the solution and make no allowance for because 50 percent of creativity is asking a different question. It's not coming up with a different answer. 50 percent of creativity is asking a better question. I mean, it, it is worrying because it essentially means that, you know, a very shallow definition of what advertising can do is used effectively as the what you might call the test question. Okay, and actually a really good test question for someone like an ad agency would be, here is a definition of the problem, how would you solve it, how much would it cost? That would be a much, now good procurement would do it that way. Now I, w- I would argue that there are some cases where of course you might feel like you are not at pole position for a pitch, there might be incumbents involved with relationships far greater than you've got. And, and that's perhaps the time where you must disrupt by coming at it from a completely different angle. Yeah, um, it, can be, it can be a huge advantage being an outsider um, because there's no point in coming second. OK, and one advantage of being an outsider is you basically go, it's a bit like Leo Burnett's quote, you know, if you reach for the stars, you may not actually get one, but you won't get a handful of mud either. And It's rather like what I would say is the Eurovision strategy, which is quite often Eurovision is won by a decidedly weird entry. And the reason is that the people who like sort of ballads or French chansons all divide their votes among, uh, you know, seven other contenders, whereas the weird outlier German punk act who defecates on the stage gets 100% of the votes of the people who hate Eurovision, like on stage defecation or whatever. And so what's interesting is that if you were the jury putting a song forward for the UK entry to Eurovision, okay, then actually what you want to do is you want to look like intelligent people who've chosen a good song. But actually you need to consider this element of game theory, which is how unlike is it from other songs that might well be dividing the vote, okay, or splitting the vote. And in many cases, doing something which will either get null point or might get 290 or whatever. I can't remember Eurovision scoring system as a total. It's a bit of a, they've messed it up anyway, the whole way in which they reveal the result. But, but actually, it's very hard for people who are trying to look rational to adopt that approach, which is basically double or quits. It's, you know, Monte Carlo or bust. Okay. And in, now what's interesting, I'll, I'll make a particular point about this. This is why, now it's complicated because all clients say, we want to see the real people who'll be working on our business. We don't want to see a professional pitch team. 
And they're right, they're right in many ways to stipulate that, but there is a problem, which is if you have the same people pitching every time, they accept the fact they're going to lose a few, okay? And they don't get into this defensive decision-making of doing something that's good, but not quite good enough to win more than a third of the time, okay? Now, if you, if you, if you have people who only get the chance to pitch once every five years, which is the real people who are working on the business, they will be disproportionately cautious and are inclined to come second, okay? Or their most likely position is second. And what you actually want is something which is 50% it'll win the business, 50% they'll think we're nuts. And so those odds and what, what you might call minimising the risk of looking bad as distinct from maximising the chance of winning, they're not actually the same thing. OK, if you want if you want if you want to be a jury who said this is our Eurovision entry and everyone will go, yes, it's very good. Thank you. OK, um, you will look good in terms of your own decision making uh, ability, but your odds of actual victory as distinct from coming fifth are lower. And so there is that there's a fundamental trade off, which you might call, you know, the optimization, you know, the optimization trade off or the distinction the distinctiveness trade-off versus the pretty good but hard to distinguish trade-off. And, and the, the other thing I've just thought of as you were talking there, in terms of this idea of having the real people on the ground who are going to deliver the pitch, this often means that they're not necessarily the best people at public speaking and, and pitching and, and you know being a personality, if you like, in front of the client. How How important do you rank that? Do you think anyone can be coached and sort of pushed on their merry way to a pitch or do you think we need more seasoned pitching professionals to increase our chances of winning it's complicated i mean the other you know the other thing is if you i do a lot of public speaking and there's a weird thing about public speaking which unless you do it quite frequently it's too frightening to do at all Okay, if you only give a public speech in front of an audience of 200 once every six months, you'll basically find that experience too frightening for you to be comfortable doing it. And there's some truth in that with pitching, which is you have to do it frequently enough to not be paralysed by fear. Now, it's worth noting, the fear of public speaking always fascinates me because it is... You know, I mean, there are a lot of people, 50% of people, okay, I would say in the population, who if you ask them to give a best man speech, that would basically have them waking up in the middle of the night for four or five months beforehand in a, in a cold sweat. Okay, it would absolutely, you know, terrify them. And I mean, obviously, those people, you know, those people tended not to go into advertising. And do you have any, uh, it's a question I get quite a lot, actually, uh, especially because my industry is the IT industry. So unlike advertising, the majority of people are not necessarily natural showmen and showwomen, if you'd like. No, no. And in, in introverts really, really hate it. I mean, you know, some, not, I mean, I'm an introvert, weirdly, but I'm one of those people who I can do it for, yeah. you know, I can yeah. do it for an hour and a half and then I want to sit in a hotel room and watch Sky News in my pants to recover. So for those people, for those people listening who might have this fear, but they, they have to do it anyway, do you have any advice for them? 
Yeah, um, the advice is do it quite a bit. I, I have to say that. I'll, I'll tell you a story about this, which is, okay, it relates to public speaking, but it's equally true of pitches. I talk to quite a lot of people on the public speaking circuit. There are a few weird ones, like you have to have a pee within 15 minutes before you go on stage <laughs> for reasons you don't fully understand. I always think that the other people think you're like a cocaine junkie or something <laughs> but it's actually the fact that you know 10 to 15 minutes before you go on stage for some reason a lot of people say you have to have a pee mm -hmm. um but the, the more interesting one more relevant perhaps is that we all notice that typically unless you're an absolute full-time public speaker in which case uh, you will um uh, you you will typically um uh, go to australia new zealand singapore for june july august there are fewer speaking engagements in the summer because people tend not to have conferences. And so the full-time people clear off uh, to the Antipodes or to the Southern Hemisphere uh, for the summer months. And they go on a kind of, you know, Viceroy's tour of the South um, and, and, and take their families sometimes and so on. But mostly, I, you know, I don't do that. Most of the people I know don't do that. And so you have in July and August, particularly, an eight-week period where you don't do any public speaking. And we all admit that when it comes to September the 11th or 12th or 13th, and you have to do your first talk in sort of 10, 10 weeks, we're bricking it. Mm. We absolutely, you know, we're absolutely, because it's crazy, okay? You know, I mean, in the event, once you stand up there and you start speaking again, it's okay. But beforehand, you're convinced you people are going to think you're shit, that you're going to, you know, you're going to completely forget your lines, that everything's going to go wrong. Now, in truth, in truth, of course, you know, I've watched a lot of people speak in public. Now, of course, there's a self-selection there. The people who are good at it tend to do it more often. But, you know, I've never seen anybody go up there once, actually. I've only seen one disaster. And that was a strange one, by the way, a very interesting one. The only time I've ever seen anybody lose the audience completely. And he, no surprise it was a he, made the terrible mistake. Some of the slides went slightly wrong. And he made the terrible mistake of being incredibly rude to the people doing the AV. And he kind of insulted the people doing the AV at the back which was seen as a kind of abuse of power, I think. And basically everybody in the... I've never seen anybody lose an audience like that. It was absolutely extraordinary. But the rest of the time, I've seen one person get nervous, disappear off stage, now, and then reappear five minutes later. Now, he probably remembers that as like the worst moment in his life. I can't remember who he was. You know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that big a deal. But oh, that's a bit weird. He's gone off stage. Oh, oh he's come back again. You know, OK. Um, the other thing is, you know, maybe film yourself. If you know, if you, I mean, that's another thing. If you're really, really, I mean, you know, I try and overcome the nerves, and I do. You know, I don't always believe in what you call aversion therapy, where if you're if you're frightened of spiders, the cure is obviously to expose yourself to loads of spiders. I don't think that's necessarily the right approach, but nonetheless, um, I think uh, that does work. Just doing it more often. Uh, the other thing I think that's, that requires practice actually is filming yourself. I had a kind of lucky break at the beginning of COVID because I'd made a few Radio 4 programmes. I recorded myself at home. I was used to talking to a microphone, to inanimate objects, OK, because I'd had about 30 hours of practice recording a series for Radio 4 and a few other things. OK, so maybe maybe break yourself in by doing podcasts. 
Because the great advantages at the beginning of COVID was, you know, people said, can you make a film and send it across? And I mean, yeah, fine. You know, and other people found that difficult at first. It took getting used to. And that's one of those other things where you felt fundamental. I think like public speaking, you, I'm still a bit nervous, OK? Alfred Brendel, the concert pianist, said, the moment I'm not nervous at all, that's when I'll retire because, I'm, you know, I no longer care, OK? I'm still a little bit nervous, but it's not the absolute kind of, uh, you know, uh, sick in the sink beforehand nerves you might have the time you do it the, fir the, the first time. It's weird, isn't it, by the way, that we find it so frightening? Don't you think? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've... I've been presenting and speaking and playing in bands and all sorts for, you know, over 20 years. And I still get nervous and it, and it drives me crackers. I think, why the fuck am I still nervous? But then it kind of, it's quite nice, if you don't mind me saying, to hear someone like yourself and saying that, you know, you still get nervous. Because I think you're quite right with that quote. You've got to have a little bit of adrenaline. You've got to have something there. Otherwise, you're probably going to be flat, right? So, so in kind of pragmatic terms, you, you know, you talk about injecting behavioural science at the beginning. What does that mean in, in pragmatic terms? Are you going in and just asking a ton of questions to try and make people think differently? Or what's the process okay. around it? Uh, it? It is deep down so simple that it, it, it almost baffles me that, uh, you know, I can, you know, effectively almost earn a living repeating the same fundamental truth over and over again. But marketers need it repeated. And I think the reason it needs repetition is precisely because of that self-delusional point I mentioned right at the beginning. Um, and what it is, is that we don't buy things or do things according to what they are. We choose things according to what they mean, specifically how they make us feel. And meaning and the feelings generated by meaning are highly context sensitive. There's also a thing, by the way, the Daniel Kahneman thing, it's much more annoying to miss a train by three minutes than it is to miss a train by 30 minutes. And so the amount of annoyance you're creating, Woolworths historically used to um, officially close at five, but they paid the staff until 10 past or something. Because the, the, the whole point was they didn't want, you know, the F.W. Woolworths didn't want to create that sense of regret, annoyance and, uh, and effrontery that saying, I'm sorry, we're closed, undoubtedly creates. And that, that's an example of, OK, the thing itself is an opening hour. OK, the meaning we interpret very much through the lens of kind of primate status thinking. And we actually see this as as an insult. And so. You, what, what I'm saying is that by changing very little or nothing about the reality, but simply changing the meaning, okay, we can have a massive effect on what is then perceived, the emotion that's then generated, and the behaviour that results. But the fact that, for example, we perceive price to some extent relatively, we don't say, is this cheap or expensive for what it is? We go compared to other things, okay? That means that you can sometimes sell more of a £300 bread maker by introducing a £500 bread maker next to it. You won't sell any of the £500 bread makers, but the, the £500 bread maker serves to make the £300 bread maker seem like a kind of middle of the road, rational mainstream choice. OK, that's the kind of, th you know, I, you can, by the way, what this means, by the way, is not only that you can sell more of good things by getting this right. 
It also means, and this is the most important role of marketing and behavioral science in marketing, it minimizes the risk of what I think is a very, very common problem, which is that someone devises a very good product but fails to find the way to sell it to people in a way that its benefits can be emotionally perceived. Okay. And I think, I think, you know, there have been very, very good. I'll give you an example. Um, well, I'll give you a lovely example here. Right. Let's imagine, okay, you've got two gas barbecues and there's one gas barbecue, which appears to be bigger and has slightly more rings and a bit more functionality. Okay. than the other gas barbecue, but the bigger, slightly more functional gas barbecue is cheaper. Now, to an economist, that's an absolutely slam-dunk, really easy decision. Cost less, higher utility, that's what you buy, okay? I would argue the human brain actually looks at things comparatively and also uses social intelligence, which is, well, if I had a better gas barbecue, I'd charge more for it, right? I would argue that in presented with that choice, many, many consumers would actually buy neither of them because they couldn't yeah, make sense that, yeah. of the relative pricing, okay? Nespresso actually did this to an extent, and I rang them up and said, are you nuts? Which is they had a Nespresso Virtuo machine and a Virtuo Plus. The Virtuo Plus had an automatic opening lid, and they priced them the same. And I said, you can't have a Virtuo and a Virtuo Plus both priced at £179 because people now can't make sense of the choice. So when they can't make sense of a choice, they choose the third option, which is to do nothing at all. What I'm saying is that actually, if you fail to understand how humans perceive the world and how they essentially integrate information to arrive at an ultimately an emotional decision, if you get that wrong, you can actually produce a brilliant product which totally fails. On the other hand, you could, if you did it differently, this is an interesting case about how psychological perception, Coca-Cola created a great scandal years ago under Robert Gosweter, because Gosweter claimed they were thinking of introducing, it was a casual off-the-cuff comment, they were thinking of introducing machines that put the price of Coke up in hot weather. And people went nuts. Now, the irony of that is if he just said, we're thinking of introducing Coke machines which drop the price in cold weather when there's less demand, people go, no, that's okay, that's fine. Okay, I mean, this is how this is how strange human reactions are in terms of how we calibrate and how we compare and so on, and also our innate sense of fairness. There's a great model, by the way, of human psychology from a guy called David Rock, who's a Kiwi ne neuroscientist based in New York, I think, and it's called the SCARF model: status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. Okay, status, certainty, autonomy. I mean, uh, uh, relatedness and fairness are very, very interesting because they're things that economists don't understand. They're things that humans feel very deeply, but don't necessarily talk about. Other, uh, the other case I know, the other thing I know, which is a bit of pitch advice, is you can't tell whether you've won. Maybe if you go last, you might have an inkling, but otherwise you can't tell it whether you've won, but you can tell fairly easily from uh, client behavior whether you, you haven't got a chance. And it's an interesting question. In a perfect world, what I'd do is I'd have a wild card pitch up my sleeve. And if I were met with that kind of, I think they've already decided this, or that, you know, they're not, you know, th th there's just a lack of engagement or response. Um, I think you need, that might be the time to pull out the wild card in the pitch.
And have you got any have you got any good examples of, of wild card pitches that you've been involved in or, or, or heard about in the past? Uh, there was one which was extraordinary, which was the wor- one of the worst pitches. It was for a building society, which I won't name. And I was so horrified by their behaviour that um, I wouldn't use their cash machines for about, you know, 15 <laughs> years afterwards. OK. That and that was a case me. where... That was a case where we would uh, all our work and and the televisions on which we were about to present the work, okay, uh, were in a great big van going out the M1. Most of us were in a train, effectively going up to a place north of not not the Halifax. I'll just let them off the hook there, but a place <laughs> north of London, should we say, where this um, building society uh, or bank was headquartered, okay, and. The chairman of the agency was driving up the M1 in his... He lived in North London, so he decided to drive rather than take the train in, in his enormous jag at the time. And in his rearview window, he saw a transit van basically hit the central reservation, fly into the air and land on its side. And he knew that all our work and all our televisions were behind that transit van and the M1 was going to be closed for an hour and a half. And so we arrive, we have nothing, OK? Nothing to present with. And all credit to him, actually. He gave a uh, a, um, uh, a very, very good introductory talk because he realised he could do the introductory talk to buy, for, to buy for time. And then just at the end of his introductory talk, televisions and things started being wheeled into the room. Boards were being wheeled in. And um, we just said, what do you want us to do? Because we obviously had to set, set the thing up. Now, they all knew because 30% of their staff hadn't turned up this morning. They all knew the M1 was closed. Okay, they all knew these were this was force majeure. It was exceptional circumstances. Okay, and we said, "What do you want to do? Do you want us just to take an extra ten minutes?" They said, "Well, you've got until nine forty. What you do with that time is up for you." They didn't say you can have another. Yeah, M one is closed. You can have another ten minutes. So I was actually presenting while connecting scart leads. I think okay, <laughs> because we realised you know we. we it was, come on, mate, you know, this is, you know, we couldn't reasonably have predicted this problem, you know, and it was certain, and then the real disaster happened, okay? We actually did a pretty good job. But the presentation of the various films we showed was loud. And the installation in the, installation in the meeting room, we bear in mind were presenting to marketing director and a couple of other board members, okay? And the installation was not great in the room, Okay. And so we were playing pretty loud films. And a little guy from an adjoining meeting room in an anorak just marched into the room without any cognizance of who was there, the fact that it was the marketing director and kind of a couple of board members and, you know, so just said, will you keep the noise down? This is an absolute <laughs> disgrace. We're trying to have, you know, actuarial meeting next door. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And he just, just shouted, just came into the room in an anorak and shouted, right? And I muttered to someone next to me, I said, we haven't got a chance now. Not a chance. Okay. And the reason was they'd been humiliated in front of us by a junior member of staff basically coming in and dressing down these people. And I jokingly said, you know, no one now having entirely circumstances beyond our control, but no one who's actually had that humiliation is going to feel good about this presentation. Because they're now feeling absolutely ridiculous because some, you know, junior scrote was allowed it to come into a room and shout at them. There's no 
way they're going to award us the business. And sure enough, they didn't. And actually, it went with a bloody incumbent anyway. So the whole thing may well have just been a kind of, uh, you know, performance mm -hmm. in any case. But I remember just muttering in the ear of the person next to me, OK, we haven't got a chance now, because they've been made to feel humiliated. And therefore, um, there's a wonderful example. A friend of my um, father's worked for ICI in Pontypool. And they were talking about new artificial fibres, you see. And someone said, why is it that we can't make an artificial fibre that feels as good as silk? And the chap said, thinking this was good showmanship, well, you know, yeah, yeah, what you mean like this? And handed them these silk samples. And they said, yes, exactly. That's what I mean. The wonderful, smooth feeling of silk. You see, and they said, that's actually an artificial fibre. And they said it was a terrible mistake because the man had been made to look slightly stupid. Right. And so actually, the likelihood, and for some reason, the whole thing went disastrously wrong. I mean, there are other famous cases. of. There's a famous case in, Ad, in Adland of a, of a case that is, and they did win it, uh, admittedly with the help of Jimmy Savile, which so will slightly park that little element. But that was Alan Brady and Marsh pitching, I think, to British mm. Rail, where they left the people waiting in the reception room with a load of full ashtrays and a load of people who are totally indifferent to them sitting kind of painting their nails behind the switchboard. And the people were just on the point of walking out because they felt so insulted. And then the Alan Brady and Marsh team, who were ex-theatre guys, so Alan Brady and Marsh were actually, two of them, I think, came from the theatre. They actually, when they pitched, they Mr. put Mr. Showbiz, X's. I think. It was uh, Mr. Showbiz. his nickname. Yeah, yeah. I, I miss them, actually, because I think Adlan needs a little component of that. Uh, funnily enough, they also built in mistakes because they realised that their showbiz approach was so slick that people felt mm. discomforted by it. So they said, and by the way, and then I'll hand it to you and you'll drop the board. OK, and make a little quick right. or we'll make a mistake here and go, oh, sorry, wrong one, because they realise that if you're too theatrically slick, it, it actually creates a sense of kind of unease and it makes you feel, feel slightly sort of less human. It's called the pratfall effect in behavioural science, if you're interested. But their famous one was actually saying, well, now you know how your customers feel treated. OK, effectively, your customers feel insulted. Our job is to solve the problem. This is how your customers feel every day of the year. This is the problem we need to solve. That was an absolutely famous piece of pitch theatre. Um, there's another piece of pitch theatre which went disastrously wrong, uh, which was, I think it was a presentation to KFC, um, uh, where a bunch of people had flown over from Louisville, Kentucky, or Dallas, or wherever they're headquartered for some presentation, and the agency had had the wizard idea of dressing up as chickens. <laughs> and when they came in as dressed as chickens, the audience just walked out of the room and basically went on to the next agency. And there, there are a few, you know, a few cases that have gone famously wrong. Um, leaving a note, and this was a really, really professional agency with some really senior people, but unexpectedly they were asked to leave the room. During the presentation, um, during the presentation, one of the agency had passed a bit of paper to one of his colleagues, okay, uh, during the presentation. And um, unexpectedly, the agency were asked to leave the room uh, and wait outside while the client engaged in some discussions. And a board client picks up this bit of paper, okay, <laughs> unfurls it, and written in the agency man's own hand is the sentence, the cunt in the glasses looks like trouble. Who is he? And only one of the clients wore glasses, okay? Now, that is a mistake that you should not be making at that level. Um, uh, what, what else? A, a few other cases have gone disastrously wrong. 
Um, uh, one case was um, at, at a time of peak terrorist activity, uh, they were pitching to El Al, and one of those people came down the outside window on one of those window cleaning things that hangs off the building, and all the clients dived under the table, as indeed yeah. they were taught to do. But it was it was a slightly unexpected event. Um, uh, you can, uh, but it's it's it, 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 there are all these, there, there are a whole bunch of wonderful stories, so, you know, some of which are actually true. I mean, certainly the British Rail one, as far as I can ascertain, did actually happen. Um, but it is it, it is a really um, fascinating thing, by the way, which is it isn't just in the pitch. I was talking to Deloitte, I think. And if you're pitching for something huge, like the audit for General Motors, it's like a billion dollar contract. And I said, do you suspect ever that, you know, uh, the reason you get it or you don't get it is simply because when you leave the room and the clients start talking, the client who most likes you happens to be over at the table pouring herself a cup of coffee or himself a cup of coffee. OK. And someone who doesn't like you so much just starts the conversation and it's too late for that person to recover the energy. In other words, even after you've presented extraordinary, this is one thing to understand about choice architecture, but also to understand about the path dependency of decision-making, that even after you've presented, weirdly random and trivial things can have an extraordinary bearing on the outcome. Mm, and there's no way, uh, really, of uh, affecting that ourselves. How much stock... Because we talked a lot there about one of my favourite topics, which is pitch theatre, and I feel like with the dawn of PowerPoint and especially COVID and Zoom and all the rest of it, I don't hear many modern-day stories of pitch theatre. And, and it's something that I'm really interested in. How much stock, can we say, do you put in kind of the, that? One bit of advice from John Steele, who's written a fantastic book on this called Perfect Pitch, which is, I think, a wonderful compliment to your own writings. But one of the bits of advice he gave us, by the way, is, you know, we thought of doing this, but we thought mm. it was a bit cheesy. And John Steele said to us, to be honest, he said, I don't think you can be too cheesy in a pitch. Uh, there's a famous example that I think when Saatchi's pitched to a Japanese car brand, they actually had a car, uh, one of the um, uh, brand's cars in their reception. All the more impressive since I, I, I seem to remember it was on the first floor or something, or the second floor. And the client jokingly said to them, if you want to win the business, you'll need to have two cars in there next time we come. Wow. And they did. Okay. Now, that kind of... There is a sort of slightly annoying Puritanism in business where that kind of chutzpah um, is less in fashion than it was. But to be absolutely honest, I think it still works. Do you think maybe works more than ever because it's not in fashion? Because, I mean, one of, the one of the questions they're asking, we're on the pitch team, we're desperate to win the business, but they're weirdly asking the question, how much do these people want to work with us? Is my business that valuable? Mm. Will I get neglected in the favour of, you know, in, you know, in the favour of larger clients? Will I get the attention of these people? You know, and so actually costly signalling does have a role, undoubtedly. Mm. The other question, of course, is there's pitch science, but there's also something which I think is neglected in agencies absolutely pull out all the stocks when a client comes up for review. Mm. But actually, to be honest, it's what you do before the pitch, which is probably 40 to 50 percent of it. OK, let's not forget that it's what you do afterwards, to, as you suggested, follow up with some material or some additional um, goodies of some kind, but also 
as a vice chairman, I occasionally get a bit pissed off with this because I go around making a lot of noise, basically. You know, now the noise is very rarely going to be quantifiable in its value. Because, you know, it, you know, the fact that people have heard of Ogilvy, they don't say I, I added you to the roster because I'd heard of you. Right. It sounds stupid. But in many cases, the reason you're probably on the roster is because someone's heard of you because they went to some event and there was a guy from Ogilvy, possibly me, doing a talk. And I think agencies massively, because everything has to be bloody quantifiable and accountable, agencies underestimate the value of just getting in there, being a good corporate citizen, you know, help out the marketing society, you know, help out the marketing, help out all these marketing groups, you know, go and, you know, go and do your stint at the IPA or the Advertising Association, go, you know, go and put some stuff in. Because, again, you know, a large part of the pitch is probably decided before the actual mm. presentation itself starts, or at least it's heavily influenced. And if you can skew that in your favour in advance, you'll probably never be able to work out, you know, the extent to which your, your own efforts contributed, but it can't hurt. There's another thing, by the way, which is I, I, I will also add as a little bit of folk wisdom just to end on. There is a big advantage in pitching to being a bit old. OK, I'm now 56. The valuable thing about being old is not what you expect when you're young. When you're young, you expect that when you're old, you can say really, really clever things and people think you're really clever because you're old. Actually, the value of being old is you can say really, really simple things without it sounding fatuous. So as a 27-year-old presenting, it is difficult to say the great thing about advertising is it makes you famous. And when more people have heard of you, more people, more people give you up, bring you opportunities. OK, because it's worth making the point that advertising doesn't only work at the level of consumers. It works at the level of employees. It works at the level of your own employees, prospective employees. It works at the level of other businesses and possibly entrepreneurs who will bring you ideas okay you know general fame works in all manner of dimensions where targeted advertising doesn't work but to make that point which is almost seemingly banal it helps if you're 56 rather than 26 because it is important occasionally to bring things back to fairly obvious almost there's a wonderful phrase of buckminster fuller's which is dare to be naive I used the phrase before I knew of Buckminster Fuller's phrase. I used to use the phrase dare to be trivial. Don't assume that because something isn't expensive or isn't necessarily a highfalutin that it doesn't have a big effect on behavior. You know, uh, some of the biggest things we ever did for American Express were redesigning application forms. You know, now that's traditionally seen as a fairly junior, you know, um, tactical exercise. Actually, in terms of the effect it had on conversion, it was spectacular. You know, dare to be naive, dare to be trivial. And one of the great advantages, one of the few bonuses of being slightly old and decrepit is that you can actually say naive and, and banal things and get away with it, which I think helps. Fantastic. Now, just before we go, are there any of your own courses or books or anything upcoming that you'd like to tell the listeners about? Oh, so Perfect Pitch by John Steele deserves a plug. Um, my own book, Alchemy, I think is worth reading just by its take on psychological, you know, that actually let's not only look for technological solutions. I, I was interested, actually, that it, it got quite favourable treatment generally by Silicon Valley engineers who realised the psychological solution is actually a complementary approach to the engineering solution. 
They're not mutually exclusive. They can be complementary. And actually, if, you're, if you can't solve the problem through engineering, maybe your best solution is to solve it through psychology. The Uber map is my example of that. You know, don't make the, the weight shorter, but just make the weight mm. less uncertain, you know, and people will be happy. And so um, I'd also recommend a book called The Choice Factory by um, uh, Richard Shotton. I'd recommend a book called Evolutionary Ideas by my colleague Sam Tatum. I'd recommend a book called, um, uh, ah, what would be another good one? Uh, another very good book to recommend is The Elements of Choice by Eric Johnson, who's at Columbia. And the whole question of choice architecture I think, and how you design menus of choices has an extraordinary bearing on not only just pitch behavior, but also on, for example, negotiation and pricing and things of that kind. Fantastic. And as someone who's read Alchemy, I would highly recommend it to anyone listening to this. It's brilliant thank stuff. Thank you. Rory, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, look forward to hearing more of your wisdom in the future. And keep up the good work. It's a wonderful thing that you do. So thank you very much indeed. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more. 